of you have noticed that the world is becoming increasingly divided. Uh, the world is divided into two groups, right? You've got you've got Christians and you've got those who can lead a sporting club. Uh, too soon. <laughs> you've got you've got Christians and you've got non-Christians. In the Christian world, you've got Catholics and you've got Protestants. In the Protestant world, you've got evangelicals and you've got high church. In the evangelical world, you've got your charismatics and your non-charismatics, your Pentecostals and on and on. We can keep going down and down. In a, in a completely different world, you've got your Sunni and your Shia. In another world, you've got your right wing, you've got your left wing of politics, you've got your progressives, you've got your conservatives. And the one thing that strikes me, how we love to listen to the people who agree with us, right? I mean, if you're a conservative, you listen to um, to Alan Jones. If you're, a, if, if you're a progressive, you listen to his brother, Tony Jones. And uh, you tend to like to, to listen to the voices that echo what's in our own heart. And even in this room tonight, we, we've got two groups, right? I mean, we've got the, uh, we've got Maroon supporters. And strangely enough, we let them in. We've got Blue supporters. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and every group has this division, right? You've got, sometimes it's the young, it's the old. Um, sometimes it's the, uh, the people who agree with me, and you've got that other group who are wrong. <laughs> and uh, into this, into this aggressive, I don't know if, if this is just my perspective, but it seems to me that this partisan divide is becoming more aggressive. Um, but I want to suggest to you that it's not all that new. It's actually been around a long time. Been around thousands of years, to be honest with you. And what we're going to do tonight, we're going to do something I think is incredibly important, very interesting, and I hope informative. Because we're going to have a look at how Jesus deals with an aggressively partisan situation. And what I hope that we can learn from this, what I hope we can take away from this, is some, is some tips and some ideas on how we have to deal with that when, I don't know, maybe there's a, a them and us thing going on in your church. Uh, we love the them and us. We love to think, you know, we are over here. This is us. We are right. We are moving forward in God. The Holy Ghost has anointed us with great power. And then there's them over there. That's, that's the those, right? The thems. And there's something about human nature that creates these walls of division all of the time. And as I said, it's been going on for thousands of years. But I just love... Jesus' approach to it. Honestly, the guy, he's the master. And as we lean into this tonight, we're going to learn some things and we're going to make some points at the end um, that I think we can draw from his teaching. But I hope tonight, more importantly than even perhaps the points I'll make at the end that we draw from the teaching, I hope that you can learn on how to deal with the tricky divides that happen even within the body of Christ. Uh, I've been in this business a long time, uh, about 35 years. I think I've been coming to this day conference, maybe a little bit longer, maybe about 36 or 7 years. Uh, I've been in church all my life. 
my brother was a pastor. Um, he told me the story many years ago when he was pastoring in a, a, uh, a provincial city in New South Wales. And some of you will remember this, Pastor Wayne, and those of us who have been around a while, uh, when this whole charismatic Christian dancing thing started coming in. You know? And uh, you remember the, the Holy Ghost two-step, right? Some of you remember that. And when this was sort of hitting in the 70s, in his church, he said to me, in, in, in my church, he said, those on the, that side of, of the auditorium, they were right into it, you know, and they were dancing. The more they were dancing, the, the more this group on this side would stand still. Stood. And the more this group over here would, would you know, we were there, good thing or whatever. The more, the more this group was, would, would stand in righteousness. Yeah. And so, you know, that ungodly behavior on the other side of the church, those sort of turns so they didn't have to behold it with their eyes. They closed their eyes so they could see the Lord. Uh, dear, and I don't want to get in anybody's uh, up anybody's nose tonight, but here's just a fact. Did you know that on both sides of just about every debate, every issue, every war in human history, there's been Christians <laughs> on both sides <laughs> crying out to God to vindicate them <laughs> and show everybody else that they are right. We are right and those are wrong. Because it's in us. It's in us all. It's in the church. It's in every human gathering that there is. And as I said, when we gather together at a wedding or a social event, we tend to look for people who think like us and the people who are, behave like us and we gravitate together, birds of a feather uh, flock together, as they say. This teaching that we're going to take where Jesus addresses this fiercely partisan environment is arguably the great, the most, uh, the great story ever told, but, but uh, the most popular story ever told. Everyone in this room knows the story. We're going to look at it tonight through a different prism, but there wouldn't be a, a, there wouldn't be a soul in the room that is not familiar with the story. And ma matter of fact, I, I'd suggest to you that there would be people um, many people on the streets of any town in this in this nation or in any nation that knows this story. It is probably the most widespread story in the history of mankind. So tonight we're going to learn why. In Luke chapter 15, you know it so well, we see the divide. It starts off in verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. So you've got the tax collectors and the sinners that are pressing so close into Jesus as he speaks that it made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain. So they want to get to Jesus, but they can't get to Jesus because the sinners are so close. So to give you some kind of context, right? All the front row are filled with sinners, and the back row are filled with Pharisees. Now, how many of our churches, man, it's a bit the reverse, right? <laughs> no aspersions being cast anywhere, by the way. But you know what I'm saying? Like, the sinners don't tend to come down the front. That's my point. That's my point. What, one of the things that strikes me is really strange with this story, however, is that the tax collectors wanted to get close to him. Remember I said a moment ago how birds of a feather flock together? 
and we hang around the people that we are like, well, the notorious sinners were nothing like Jesus, right? In him, there was no sin at all. So, so Jesus had never committed sin, yet the people who wore sin as a badge wanted to get close to him. Isn't, isn't that bizarre? Like, isn't that strange? That's so counterintuitive. But then again, most of the things we find about Jesus are counterintuitive. They're opposite to the, the standard culture of the world in which we live in. When Jesus walked into the city, the people who were nothing like him liked him. And the people who thought they were close to God, the people who lived pious lives, the people who, who uh, memorized the Bible, knew the scriptures, uh, not so much, didn't really like him. So how does he handle this situation? When in front of him is this bunch of notorious sinners who hate the Pharisees and who think the Pharisees hate them. And they're right. <laughs> the Pharisees do hate them. The Pharisees think that God doesn't like them. And you have this partisan, vitriolic divide. And what does Jesus do? Well, we're about to read it. You know what he does. He tells a story. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? He tells a story. I tell you why this is so important. Because if you disagree with someone and you confront their theology, you're never going to convince them. <laughs> if you disagree with someone and you bring about your ideas as opposed to their ideas, he doesn't start with theology. He doesn't start with ideas. He starts with a story. Why? Because stories have a way of getting past your head and into your hearts. The story is about to grip his audience. He's going to tell a story and get everybody on board his train in a masterful way. You know, when people start yelling their ideas and, you know, you're wrong, you shouldn't do that, and we're right. If you ever see, if you ever watch television, I don't know, some debate on TV or something, you've got two people arguing both sides of the issue. If you've ever seen in your entire life anyone get halfway through the argument and go, oh, you're right, I didn't see it like that before. Yeah, no, I'm coming, I see it your way now. No one ever does that. Why? Because your pride won't let you, that's why. <laughs> let me put it to you like this, and this is worth taking home. When emotion is high, learning is low. Take that to the bank. <laughs> when emotion is high, learning is low. So if I'm going to get you offside, if I'm going to press your emotional buttons, I'm not going to teach you a thing. Let me tell you why this is so important. Because some of you want to teach the guy who just preached for you when he gets off the, off the pulpit, don't do it. When emotion is high, learning is low. Bear that in mind. So Jesus takes the emotion out of the, the air by telling a story. And he's a masterful storyteller. As we know, he tells a story about something that everybody can relate to, and everyone in this room can relate to it too. He tells a story of loss, because loss is part of the human experience. You've lost, I've lost, we've all lost something. And what do you do when you lose something? I lost the unit key just about three or four hours ago. Am I the only one? Like, where did I put that stupid thing? I got so much in my mind, I put the key somewhere. And what do you think I had? What do you think I did? 
I knew I was preaching tonight, but do you think I could turn my back on the that lost key? No way. I had to find the key. Because that's what you do when you lose something. You search for it and you find it. And he tells a story about a bloke, a shepherd who lost his sheep, which doesn't mean an awful lot to most of us in this room, but you've got to remember, David stood between a lion and the, and, and the sheep, right? So in this culture, that, that, that actually had some, some gravitas to it. Possibly lost a little bit on this audience on my other day and age. But everybody in the room, left or right, sinner or righteous, all understood loss. And they all gripped into the emotion of his story and get lost and then, and then he searched and they all, you know, and what happened, what happened? And then he found it. And what did he do? He rejoiced. And right then, the sinners and the Pharisees did something they never thought they would do. They agreed. <laughs> they went, yeah, that's good. And they're all agreeing. They think, I've never agreed with him in my life. We don't agree with that lot. We're on the other side of the, the divide from that lot. And he goes rapid fire straight to the next story. He sees a woman probably in the crowd. She's possibly a little a, a older woman because she's very concerned about money. And, uh, and well, you know, you get to a point in your life, right? But, you know, just tell me what matters. And, uh, and maybe he'd seen his mother search for her, his, her purse, I don't know. But he sees a woman, uh, he sees a, a woman or some women in the crowd and he, he wants to bring them in. So he says, talks a story about a woman and she lost a coin. Well, that's dreadful. And what does she do? Well, when you lose something, what do you do? You search for it, you find it, and you rejoice. Then he gets to the nub of the issue. And he talks about a guy with two sons. Now, we all know that, don't we? We all know he had a behaving son and a misbehaving son. Am I right? And where was the misbehaving son sitting in the audience? At the front. The notorious sinners. And the behaving son, where were they sitting? At the back. The Pharisees. Oh, this is what this story is actually about. He's trying to break down this wall. He's got them all agreeing, and then he tells a story that literally represents the people in his audience. He talks about a young man. He said, his young man went to his father. I'm going to tell you the Reader's Digest version because you all know it. He goes to his father. He says to his father, you're dead to me. I never want to see you again. I never want to talk to you again. I want to act from here on in as if you're dead. I don't want anything to do with you. I want to have my inheritance now. That which will normally happen after you pass, I want to do it now. And so, for whatever reason, the father consents and he liquidates property or whatever and gives what would have been the youngest son a third of his estate because the older brother would have got twice the inheritance. You know the story. And, and the younger man takes his money, that which would have been his when he, once his father died. And what does he do? Well, you know, he goes on riotous living. He has friends, but then the friends run out because the money runs out and famine comes and hard times hit, and now he's got nothing. You know what's going on in the audience because that's the context we're looking at. What's going on in his audience? Everybody's agreeing with him. Everyone, oh, that's dreadful. That's good that that boy did that to his dad, and now this happened. Good. But wait, Jesus is going to get worse. 
And then Jesus gets to the part of the story where he says, and he's sleeping with eating with pigs. Remember, this is a Jewish audience, right? It's like, what the heck? No way! That's how far this Jewish boy has, has fallen? He's now literally eating with pigs? You've got to be kidding me! Why, this is magnificent! I can't wait to get to Sabbath school, line up all the young men and say, you treat your parents like this and you'll finish up with nothing and you'll live in a pig pen. Now take that lesson and go home. They're going to be thinking this is one of the greatest stories I've ever heard. This is magnificent. We're loving this story. And of course, you know how it goes. He, he, he comes to his senses. Sin has a gotcha moment, it always does, and when it gets you, it sort of knocks sense, sense into you. How many know that the human heart runs on delusion? Mine, yours, every human heart, as much as these uh, lights run on power, the human heart runs on delusion. And, and, and it takes, it takes a, a large dose of reality to get through our blind spots. But that's what this kid had. He had a large dose of reality, and boom! He saw his wretched state and he thought to himself, how many of my father's servants, how many of my father's slaves are better off than this? And he hatches an idea. He thinks, I'm going to go back and see if my dad will take me and just do something for me. And he comes up with this little pattern, this, this little, little phrase that he probably rehearses the whole way back as he's walking back to his, his dad. And I, I can just hear the audience in their hearts thinking, oh, this is good, man. Oh, his old man's going to let him have it. <laughs> his father that would have been crippled and, and, and depressed and, and, and torn apart by his son's behaviour, now he's going to be able to look his father in his face his son's going to be able to tell him exactly how he feels. So the story unfolds, as you know, and, and he comes around the bend. He, he, he gets close back home and, and the father can see him. And the story unfolds that Jesus says, and when the father saw him, he was filled with, and this is the poignant moment, folks. He was filled with. <laughs> what would you write in there? If you write this, this is a story, this isn't, a, a, this isn't a, something that happened in history. This is a made-up story. This is teaching us something. I don't think it's teaching us how to parent, just by the way. Just put that to one side, okay? That's another story. <laughs> This is teaching us something about the heart of God. And, and so he's filled with, what would you put in the blank? He's filled with hurt. He's filled with anger. Maybe he's filled with vindictiveness. It says that he was filled with love and compassion. But wait, it gets worse. Not only is he filled with love and compassion, but it says then that he runs. He runs. He runs. Let me tell you something. Um, I've been to Israel. Nobody runs in Israel. Uh, I'm a runner. I, I run most mornings. And uh, if I'm out here at the front of uh, the spit down here at Malulabar on the Esplanade or whatever, if I don't look where I'm going, I'm going to run into somebody, right? Because there's people out there running every morning, hundreds, thousands of them. When you run in Israel, the dogs bark at you. You don't have to worry about hitting anyone because there ain't no one else out on the track, I can assure you. That's why they have a thing called the Maccabee Games. Anyone heard that? You know why they have the Maccabee Games? They have their own games. 
because they've never won one medal on the Olympic Games and track and field, ever. They've never won one. They've won a couple of gold medals for sailing or something, but they've never won a proper Olympic event. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. <laughs> one that you all watch, you know what I mean. And this bloke runs. Like, what is it? He's running? Patriarchs don't run. This story's getting worse. This is what's happening. Let's come back to the crowd, because that's really our focus here, right? So the crowd's been going, yes, oh, great, yes. Both the righteous and the unrighteous. And then Jesus kind of goes, whack. And they all go, oh, oh. And in unison, both the righteous and the unrighteous go, no, that's not right, no. I can see some Pharisees screwing up his paper going, well, there goes my Sabbath lesson on Sabbath school. Blow that for a joke. I'm not going to tell this story. What if this story gets out? What if somebody hears about this story? Someone one day might hear about this story. That would be dreadful. Who knows where people's behavior will end if they know they can come back. It's an abomination. That's a word we like. It's an abomination. But, but, let, let, me, let me tell you this. How you respond to sin tells you more about your spiritual maturity than just about anything else. How you respond when you're hurt. The father's not angry. He's not vindictive. He's not damaged. He's filled with love and compassion. You can tell how spiritually mature you are by how you respond to another's sin. And what does he do? He, he enters into his little power, you know, Father, forgive me for our sin and what have you. I love the Father's response. I really love this because I'm a father. And I'm sure I'm not the only father in the room who's been in you know, emotional, poignant moments with their offspring and hasn't known what to say. <laughs> Any other bloke in the room? I love this. Because he comes to his dad and he says, you know, Father, forgive me, I've sinned against heaven, blah, 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 blah. And what does the father say back? How does the father respond? Does he go, there, there, son, oh, it's okay, you know, no, no, don't worry about it, it's all good. Does he say, you sure did, you rotten blighter? <laughs> go back away, I never want to see you again. What does the father say to the misbehaving son? He says... Nothing. Oh, that just gives me so much strength as a father. <laughs> he says nothing. There's no rebuttal. There's no agreement. There's no response. In fact, his next word I think is wrong. If I could go back in time and if I could consult with Jesus, I'll tell him you got this one wrong. So Jesus, you need to change this. <laughs> I think you'll agree with me, folks. I honestly think you'll agree with me. Because the first word he says is not to the son. The first word he says is to his servants and he uses this word crazy right he uses this word quick quick bring the robe and the, the ring and, and, and so forth and the sandals quick i wouldn't say quick i'd say slow wouldn't you wouldn't you i mean he needs to prove himself for crying out loud put him in this uh 
put him in his barn at the back of the, the property over there. Make sure he's got food and water, but don't tell his mother. I mean, you know, he ripped his mother's heart out. Let's just give him a few months. Let's make sure that this is not, you know, some serendipitous moment where he sort of come back because he's got nothing. See if he can rip off the silverware. Put him in the back there. Let him prove himself. And if he's still going in two months' time, we'll tell his mother he's back and we'll sort of, you know, slowly edge him back into the family. Right? Quick! That's scandalous, folks. That's wrong. Quick is wrong. It should be slow. Let's bring him back, man. I've been hurt. I've been let down. I've been disappointed. I've been betrayed. I've been lied to. Slow. But quick. What kind of nonsense response is this, Jesus? Quick. Bring me all these things. Put on. Put them on him. No probation period. Remember, the, the man has two sons. The man doesn't have two sons. There's two groups in the audience. We've already established that fact. He's speaking to the audience. It's the two groups in the audience. The misbehaving has been attended to. He now turns his attention to the behaviors, the Pharisees, the religious. And uh, behaving sons have been out in the field. You know the story? He comes on back. His um, riotous partying going on. What's going on here? He goes and peers in. He notices that the fatted calf is missing, and the fact that it's referred to as the fatted calf is an indicator that it was meant for something. Uh, maybe his 21st, maybe his engagement, we don't know. <laughs> but the other boy was off the agenda, so it was meant for something. And it's fair to say that he was probably involved, and now the fatted calf is gone, and he is angry. He's seething. He's a seether. Any other seethers in the room? I'm a bit of a seether. I see the righteous indignation. Oh, glory to God. <laughs> he's seething with righteous indignation. There's a riotous party going on there, and he ain't going in there. I'm not going to contaminate myself by entering into that, 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 that abomination before the Lord. Now, he was completely self-righteous in his opinion. So this is the macabreness of the moment, folks. We've got the Father. Now, we all know who the Father is in the story, don't we? The Father is God. And the Father wants a party, but ain't no one going to come to the Father's party. Why? Because the unrighteous doesn't think he's worthy that he's liked, that he belongs, and the righteous doesn't think there should be a party in the first place. So God's putting on a party and no one is coming. And everybody is justified in, 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 in their staying away from the party. The unrighteous and the self-righteous in the crowd are maybe just now starting to get the idea. <laughs> And then we have a, a speech, we had the speech from the, um, from the younger brother a minute ago. That was the heart of the, the sinner. God, I'm not worthy, God. Maybe you could extend a monogram of grace to me. Listen to the older brother. The older brother was angry, wouldn't go in. His father came out, begged him. He replied, all these years I've slaved for you. Wow, 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 wow. Okay. So the righteous 
behave like a slave. And the unrighteous feel like a slave. Everybody's a slave. I believe someone came to take us out of slavery. I've slaved for you and I've never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And all the time, you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. And when this son of yours, not this brother of mine, this son of yours, he doesn't, he doesn't commence his speech, by the way, either of addressing it to his father, which, by the way, in that culture would have been another slap in his father's face. This son of yours comes back, having squandered your money on prostitutes. That's right. He spent your money on prostitutes. And you celebrate him by killing the calf. Wow. Anyone ever been unloaded on by their kids? I mean, this young man, he is completely and utterly righteous in his position. He's feeling the pain of it. Because he misunderstood the whole story. I just fear, folks, I just, I just fear sometimes that that could be me. I just fear sometimes that I could miss the whole story. Because I'm just so darn busy doing what I'm being told to do by God. And, and you know, you know, like, hey, I'm up on my head down, I'm trying to deal with this issue and this issue and this issue and this issue. I can identify. I don't know who you identify with. Most of us identify more with one than the other. I identify with this guy. I, I, I can understand this. Have you today you've got, you've got the good and the bad. You've got the ins and the outs. You've got the progressive. And then you've got the bigoted, judgmental. And who are we? Which, which camp are we in? I love this. I love this because we see that God ain't in any camp. <laughs> He's not in my camp over here in the religious right. And he's not in their camp over there in the progressive left. He's not in their camp over there on, on, on the, the high church. He's not in their camp over there, you know, on the on the evangelical. He's not with the, the he's not with the Pentecostals or with the charismatics. He's not in anybody's camp. He's not in my camp. He's not in your camp. You know one thing I've learned over 12 years of leading this movement? Is when both sides are angry with you, you're about right. Anyway, let's put that on myself. <laughs> the older brother thinks he's right. And the younger brother's convinced of his position. I want you to listen to this. Because this blows me away. I said before, you know, when the son came with you know, his, his excuse, his explanation for the way he feels, the father says nothing. He just does something. In this case, he says something. And I, I want you to lean in and listen to what he says. He says, My son, you are always with me. You are always with me. 
everything I have is yours. That's kind of like, boom. Jesus drops the mic and exit stays out. And this audience having managed to unite in stories of loss, he then united in their misunderstanding of the nature of God. The sinners misunderstood God. They didn't misunderstand Jesus because they wanted to be with Jesus. And the church people, or the Pharisees, or however you like to describe them, the behaviors, the behaviors misunderstood God. Both thought they knew God. Both thought they knew where God stood on matters. Jesus showed them that they were both wrong. And we've titled this conference The Grace Years, and grace is eternal, years are temporal. That's what it's all about. It's about the eternal meeting the temporal. It's about the unseen penetrating to the seen. It's about the divine becoming mortal. It's about Jesus becoming flesh. It's about the body of Christ penetrating the world for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the coming together of these two lofty concepts. The grace of God, the majesty, the eternity, the power, and the fragility of the mortal soul that exists in this room and in the suburbs and in the towns and in the villages of our nation. And human hearts that are constantly trying to be divided by I wouldn't say necessarily everyone, but I'm sure he gets involved. But by just the nature of man. And God who comes along, and he is our peace that breaks down every wall. And what can we learn? Three quick things. The discipleship is more about being with him than doing for him. I don't know if you've ever suffered from performance anxiety. <laughs> You ever thought you've got to perform, you've got to be up to speed or whatever? I want to suggest to you that discipleship is not so much about performing, it's not so much about your success. I know that success makes us feel good. I know we love to come to places like this and, and get filled with vision and, and, and faith and believe and, and all this kind of thing. But the truth of the matter is, God wants us to understand his presence and get excited about his presence and get filled with his presence. And he wants you to know that no matter what you have done or what you haven't done, he wants to unfairly pour his spirit out upon you during this week. He wants to fill you with his presence. He wants you to be with him. And you, you might be describing and you might think, well, you don't know, man, I just, I'm a failure. I failed. I tried and... I feel like somehow the favor of God's not on me. I, I've messed up. I, I don't deserve it. Maybe some of you have thought that. Maybe some others in this room or life, church, who have got the live stream, maybe you're sitting there and maybe you've looked around and thought to yourself, you know, most people don't deserve it. They don't deserve to be on it. No, they don't deserve that, that position. They don't deserve to have that grace and blessing upon their life. I know what they're really like. They grew up in my youth group. <laughs> I'm related to them. <laughs> I know what's really going on. They don't deserve. And maybe you're a little suffering from older brother syndrome. And I want you to know this. 
I want you to know that this is grace is the great level. Thanks. It's the great level. I don't care if you're a sinner, uh, 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 an un, uh, unrighteous, or righteous. I don't care how big your church is, how small your church is, how successful you might feel, how much of a failure you might feel. It doesn't matter. During this week, God wants to pour out His, um, His immeasurable grace upon your life in a fresh and in a powerful way. Not because you deserve it, because that's who He is. And He wants you to be with it's all about being with Him. Sometimes I think we can fall into the performance trap and it becomes all about what I've got to do, what I've got to do next, and how I didn't do well enough last time, maybe I can do better next time. God looks at this, He's not. You take your performance, it's about your presence. I want you present with me. I want you to fill your heart and mind with my thoughts. I want to be with you. That's what this is about. That, that misbehaving son. He was separate from us, but he's now back with us. Number one. Number two. Is for you prayer a beauty? Not a duty. That's a beauty. Not a duty. You know, even, even a completely uh, unrighteous pagan person enters into transactional prayer when they need it. <laughs> you know what I mean, don't you? I mean, when the chips are down... People who pretended they were atheists will all of a sudden cry out to God. Transactional prayer is, is, you know, I mean, we all do it. We all pray to God for things we need. It's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. But I want to suggest to you that prayer is a place that you go more than something that you do. Prayer is a place that you go. I enter into the presence of God. I enter into this, uh, this, this holy place of of intimacy with, with the Father and me. And it's not a duty, it's a beauty. It's something that I want to do, it's something that I long to do. I just want to be with Him. How easy it is to become like that old boy and, 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 and you know, think that somehow we need to be recompensed for our duty for what we've done rather than resting in the beauty of His presence. How many know grace often feels unfair? Man, I tell you, how would you like to have been the rich young ruler at, at, at the crucifixion of Jesus when he turned to the sinner and he said, today you'll be, be in paradise? How would you feel? What? What the heck? He told me I had to sell everything. He made, he made the bar so high, I couldn't get over it. He turns to that boy on the cross who's done some heinous act. He turns to him and says, hey, you're in. What about me? It's not fair, right? Grace isn't fair. I mean, what about his victims? Maybe his victims came to watch him, you know, um, pay for his crimes. Uh, There's no victim impact statement of what that guy had done. I can assure you that he'd done something heinous because they don't crucify people in the Roman Empire for no reason. And I don't know how the victims felt when they listened to Jesus who turned to them and said, you're in. You're in. You're part of us. And they thought, no, he's them. He's on the outside. He's part of them. Look at what he's done. Think about what he's done, Jesus. He can't be part of the us crowd. He can't be part of the in crowd, the righteous crowd. Missed the point, eh? How I missed the point. And the last thought, if the musicians want to join me, we're going to finish with this, but 
I want to encourage you to commit yourself to building a grace community. Filled with the beautiful, unified differences of this world. When we rail against the outsiders, when we rail against the thems, you know, one thing I never want to be accused of as a, a leader in the house of God is weak politics. It's so easy to take cheap shots at individuals who've done dumb things. It's, it's so easy to, to build a wedge and, and, and rail against that group over there because we are the righteous group over here and we've got it all together over here and we know what we're talking about over here and that lot over there, man, they're damned, they're, they're, they're out of culture, they're wrong. I never want to do that. I never want to use his pulpit to put a wedge between his people. I never want to let a view get in the way of a you, I heard someone once say. <laughs> I never want to let a view, I thought that was brilliant. I never want to let a view get in the way of a you. It's, it's easy to build religious communities, it's easy to build a them and us thing. Those on the inside that got all that together, we got the truth and we got the anointing and we got the righteousness and we, we, we're going to take that group over there. No, we're not, we're going to serve that group over there. We're going to give ourselves to that group over there. We're going to break down the walls of division between that group and us. That we might be the dispensers of his grace and his mercy. Be aware of this human nature to create division, to create divides. And remember, he is our peace that has broken down every wall of division, every wall between male and female, how many of those big walls there, between Jew and Gentile, how many of those big walls there, every wall of division. Let's not be the people who put it back in Jesus' name. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.